Our scripture reading is Genesis 26. Um, we'll read the whole chapter. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I, be, I, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offsprings, I would give all these lands, and I would establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offsprings all these lands. And in your offsprings, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because Rebecca, because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are, very might, you, are, you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the, the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names of his, that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there was a well spring water, the herdsmen of Gerah quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of the, play, of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called it Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerah with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Fekol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to, 
Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and sent me away from you? They said, We plainly see the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you, you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oats, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemat, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, how great and glorious are you. We are unable even to praise and honor you sufficiently in our own abilities. We humbly ask that your Holy Spirit will fill us and empower us to worship you. What a privilege we have not only to worship but to approach you in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity and the joy of pastoring this church. It is truly a blessing to see you work in the hearts of your people, to experience all the many gifts and abilities that you have placed in these people. I pray that you will strengthen, that you will encourage and bless each one, that you would bless them abundantly, that you would bind us together in love and in unity for your glory. Use us for the advancement of your gospel here in Milton and Atlanta. Lord, grow us in the gospel and grow our church by the gospel. We pray that you would use us and that you would send us more faithful followers of Christ to help us fulfill your work here. That you would supply the people and support the work with abundant resources. We pray for those, Lord, who have gone out from us to serve in hard places. As we were reminded this morning of the S family in Central Asia and the F family preparing, Lord, in France even now for their deployment and the D family as they continue to serve you in Europe. Lord, remind them that we love them and call their name to you regularly. Bless them and use them mightily for your kingdom's work in this dark and broken world. Father, we are short of our Lottie Moon Christmas offering goal. And I pray that you would raise up more gifts. That you would see us move past that goal for the benefit of those who have given themselves to the task at hand. Lord, we pray this morning for... Uh, whispering hope, this crisis pregnancy center and all the work they're doing, 
and for the special offering that we'll be taking in days to come for them. We pray that you will continue to work through them. We're excited, Lord, how they stand in the gap and how they um, promote the sanctity of human life and how they use the gospel and stand on the gospel, Lord, to make a difference in so many lives. We pray that you will continue to bless them. And Lord, today we pray especially for Trinity Church that is launching, having their first Sunday together as a new fellowship in the Kennesaw area. I pray that you will bless Zach as he leads that congregation and for the more than 50 people who have gone out from Mount Vernon Baptist Church, Lord, to form this new fellowship. We pray that you will supply all their needs, that you will send them converts, and, Lord, that you will guard their unity. Use them to proclaim the gospel in that area and upon that college campus. And, Lord, we pray for Mount Vernon. What an incredible vision and sacrifice that you have worked through that congregation to give up such a large portion of their people, Lord, to this work. And so I pray that you will protect and encourage their leaders, Aaron and all those elders, and that you will send others, Lord, to fill the spaces that have been left because of these that have been sent out, that you might allow them to continue to grow and flourish there in Sandy Springs. And Lord, I pray that uh, we might be encouraged and inspired and even challenged to embrace such a vision here at Milton Community Church, that you would strengthen us, that we might be able to plant more healthy churches, and that you use us, Lord, to multiply the gospel in and throughout our metropolitan area. And we'll praise you for what you do and are doing even now, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the 26th chapter of Genesis is an interlude of sorts. It offers us a brief glimpse into Isaac's life, but primarily it's a bridge between Abraham's life and that of Jacob. Almost everything we know about Isaac is from this chapter. He's not a major player in God's unfolding work. Uh, through redemptive history. An Anglican cleric and scholar named Griffith Thomas described Isaac this way. He said he was the ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. He's kind of sandwiched in there. Uh, That's not to diminish him in any way. He is greatly important in God's work as he does provide the bridge between the two. And I would suggest that everything that we do know about Isaac is that he was a steady eddy, so to speak. He was faithful for the most part in all that God put before him to do. He just wasn't one of those prominent figures that we see as uh, we examined Abraham's life and later Jacob's life. He lived 180, 180 years, which is longer than either Abraham or Jacob, but his life was rather undistinguished. So this chapter offers us several subjects that we could explore, but in the interest of our discussion this morning, we're going to focus on a primary topic, which has to do with God's long-suffering or patient character. It's something that benefits each and every one of us, 
something that's very important, probably more so than we care to think about. And first, we're going to learn a little bit more about Isaac, and then we're going to turn our attention to what the text shows us, reveals to us about God himself. So let's think, first of all, about what we can learn about Isaac. And I would say that, first of all, we see that he is fallen, just like his earthly father. Children seem to imitate their parents, don't they? You've seen it happen. It's happened in your household. You've heard it come out of your mouth, right? You've said things and you think, wow, I've heard that before. That sounds just like something my dad said or something my mother said. It happens to all of us. I'm not a a connoisseur of commercials by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I try to avoid them as much as possible. But one that is my favorite is one of those progressive insurance uh, ads that uh, features uh, Dr. Rick. You've probably seen it. You know, he's got the bushy mustache and he's got the sweater vest. And his job is to uh, provide therapy and counseling to those who find themselves imitating their parents. You know, you've seen them. Uh, If it's something like clapping at the end of a film and he will tell them, look, no one who made the film is here. No one is here. So why are you clapping? Or telling anyone who will listen about their morning, hey, we all know you got up early. Nobody cares, right? Or then there's the one that, uh, where they're stopping and commenting on the color of someone's hair, and he says, we all see it. We all see it. You don't have to point it out, right? Or correcting the placement of pillows on the couch. That's my favorite. And he says, if you have nowhere to sit, you have too many pillows, Right? Well, I like Dr. Rick, and uh, the commercial is particularly uh, appealing to me because it reveals so much of real life. We all imitate our parents. We're fallen by nature, and we're going to duplicate the things that they do. We're going to say the things that they say. Isaac emulated his father in some unhelpful ways. The scripture says, now there was a famine in the land. This is identical to the phrase that's used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, after Abram and Sarah arrived in Canaan. There was a famine in the land. And what did they do? Abram went down to Egypt, the text says. Now, Egypt represents the world. It means turning away from that which God has placed you in, the place where God has set you or told you to trust him, and turning instead to the world looking for provision, looking for assurance, looking for comfort. So Abram went down to Egypt, and rather than trusting God, he looked for the world's assurance and help. The famine that Isaac faces, the scripture is very clear, it's not the same famine that Abraham faced, but it's similar. And what did Isaac do? Isaac picked up and started his way toward Egypt. Now listen, Abraham encountered his famine more than 20 years before Isaac was born. So Isaac didn't observe this. And I doubt very seriously if Abraham spent much time teaching Isaac about this grave mistake that he made in following the Lord. Why did he do it? He did it because he's a fallen creature in a fallen world. And our nature, our bent, is to turn to that which we can tangibly touch or see and look to supply our needs. Rather than trust God, rather than wait upon God, we take the initiative and try to fix things in and of ourselves. So Isaac went to Gerar. 
which was on the way to Egypt, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Now, I know what you're thinking. Abraham had an encounter with Abimelech as well. Is it the same guy? Probably not. Abimelech is probably just a title. Like Pharaoh was a title for the king of Egypt, this may have been the title that the Philistines were using to describe the one who governed over them. This flight toward Egypt displays a complete lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. He's probably had plenty of evidence in Abraham's life, and he's probably heard the matter discussed many times, and yet in himself, his own faith falters in this moment of challenge and difficulty. He doubted God's ability to care for him in these severe trials that he was facing. We see another flaw in Isaac that also reminds us of Abram. When the men of Gerar asked him about his wife, Is she attached? Is she available? Got some guys here looking for a wife. She might make a good one, right? Apparently, she was a knockout. She was a very attractive woman. And Isaac, just like his father Abraham before him, feared for his own life. He feared that they would kill him and take her if they knew that she was his wife. So he said, she's my sister. Now, this was even a more egregious lie than Abram told. At least Abram's was a half-truth, right? Sarah really was a half-sister, but Rebecca wasn't. She's my sister, he said, because he thought they will kill me because of Rebecca. So he lied, hoping to protect himself. But we also see some encouraging things in Isaac, and it'd be unfair not to point those out. We see, as we read through the text, that he listened to God and obeyed his instructions. When God spoke, Isaac took it to heart and did what God asked him to do. He was rather bold and courageous to reestablish the faithful patterns represented by the wells that his father had dug. Now, water was an important thing in this climate, in this area. Without water, you're going to die. It's a desert climate. And so when Abraham had dug those wells, it was also a way of putting his trust and belief in God. God provided this water that sustained life. And so the uh, enemies, the Philistines, uh, the men of Gerar, the herdsmen, for whatever the reason, had come along and filled in those wells that Abraham had dug, wiping out any evidence of his living there. And so when Isaac went back and found those wells and started cleaning them out and going back to the water, he was following in his father's footsteps. And this was a good imitation. He also imitated his father's good example by returning to Beersheba. This is the place where Abraham had worshipped and called on God. And Isaac went there and he himself Worship God, though it took him a little while to get there. He was not contentious toward uh, the neighbors, even though they were adversaries, even though they were pushing back against him or they were trying to push him out of the area. He demonstrated hospitality toward them. He was a fallen man, a sinner by nature, but the good news is he was not resistant to God. He was teachable. He was moldable. The real hero, though, in this passage is God himself, as it always is. 
So let's think about what we discern about God in this passage. I want you to see how God reveals his character in his interactions with Isaac through this passage. First of all, we see God's patience. God's patience. Is it easy for you to be patient? Are you a patient person? Yeah, Kyle, don't even go there. I mean, patience is not something that comes easily for us, is it? Waiting for something to happen. And it's more so, I know I say this all the time, but it's more so in our culture today because we're used to having everything we want instantaneous. We want immediate gratification. Now, we've just learned to do that. You know, I remember when we first had computers, you know, and you had the old dial-up connection. And you might have to sit there five minutes just waiting to get a connection to send an email. And now, if it takes more than three seconds, you're pounding on the computer and yelling at the internet connection, aren't you? Well, we have some liars here today, too. (laughs) It's not easy to be patient. Whether you're in the checkout line, whether you're sitting in traffic, whether you're waiting on the heating and air guy to show up and repair your unit, or you're waiting for the power to come back on after an outage, or you're waiting on the contractors who are building roads, or a house, or a new porch, or simply remodeling your kitchen, or you're waiting on your children to mature into adults, or you're waiting on that job promotion. Or advancement. But are you glad that God is patient? Are you glad that God is long suffering? What if He simply zapped you every time you messed up? You know, like an electric fence. You know, some of you, uh, Tommy knows what an electric fence is to keep the livestock in a place, and you touch those things and it zaps you. What if God did that every time you messed up or every time you thought about messing up? But he doesn't. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's kind. In spite of what the world thinks about God. We might have put Isaac on blast here. You're committing the same sins as your father. What's wrong with you? How can you dare do this? You must do better. The Lord appeared to him. Do not go down to Egypt, he said. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. Now, where he was in Gerar was right at the southern edge of Canaan. I mean, he's right on the edge of leaving Canaan and diving back into the world. God says, just hold everything right here. Don't go any further. You stay here in this land, I'm going to be with you, and I will bless you. Not Abimelech, not the herdsmen of Gerar, not the Egyptians, me. I will do this. I'm going to take care of you. Just do as I tell you. God appears to Isaac, and he is patiently, long-sufferingly coaching and instructing his person, his guy. He also exposed Isaac's lie. I imagine this was quite embarrassing, just like it was for Abraham. Abimelech confronted him. What's wrong with you? Don't you realize by telling this lie that you could have caused someone, some person that's under my responsibility to have 
slept with her, to have taken her as his wife, to have offended your God? I mean, what we see here is that Isaac's morality at this point has gone beneath that of Abimelech and his people. Even they knew this was wrong. So we see God's patience. He's patient with Isaac. He's patient. He was patient with Abraham. He's patient with you, and he's patient with me. We also see God's generosity. We see God's generosity here. Isaac sowed in that land. Now, I told you, it's a dry climate. It's an arid climate. It's a desert. Water is scarce. Down in the southern half of Israel out there, if you're there uh, during the wet season, the rainy season, or thereafter, what you see is in some of those uh, trenches, ravines that run where the mountains come together, you'll see uh, green ribbons running down where everything is turned green because of the water running off in those places. And the rest of it's brown. It's just brown and dry. So trying to become a farmer in that area is not a prosperous endeavor, typically. But notice what happens. He sowed seed and he reaped in the same year what? A hundredfold. The bounty was incredible. This reminds me of Joseph, you know, when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream and he told him, he said, Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. What was he about to do? He said, there's going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of plenty, seven years where there's going to be a produce like you've never seen before. And then there will be seven years of famine after that, reminding us who's in control of these things, who's in charge of these things. It is God who blesses. It's God who withholds the blessing. The Lord blessed Isaac. He became rich and gained more and more. He became very wealthy. He gained possessions of flocks and herds and many servants while here in a desert area, not in the middle of Egypt in the world, but right there where God told him to sojourn and stay. God said, I will bless you. There's no other explanation for it. No way naturally you could expect this to happen. Now the wealth was wonderful, but the wealth also caused his enemies to resent him. And so it's a double-edged sword. So the Philistines, they began to resent. They began to be afraid, thinking he's growing too powerful, or they just wanted what he had. In other words, they wanted him out. Move him out. Then we see in the midst of this, God's faithfulness. Isaac did as the Lord instructed and moved as Abimelech requested. Abimelech said, you need to go. You're making my people nervous. Isaac could have said, look, your people need to grow up. I'll have my God zap you. That's not what he did. He packed his stuff up and moved. It's their land. He's a sojourner. He's an alien there. And so he does as he's asked. And he camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And he reestablished the spiritual path charted by Abraham. He opened the wells again. And this led to conflict with the herdsmen of Gerar. And he graciously kept moving until there was no more opposition, no more resistance and there he settled. And he dug another well. And there was no quarreling over this well. And he called it Rehoboth because he said, The Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. 
God is faithful. God provides not only what he needed, but also the safety and distance from his enemies, from those who resented him. And then we see God's worship. Beersheba marked the southern edge of Canaan, and the Lord again appeared to Isaac here, and he reiterated the covenant and promise that said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. He built an altar and engaged in worship of the Lord. He pitched his tent and his servants dug a well. We're reminded, this is what we're here to do. We're here to worship God. Psalm 29.2 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. I hope and trust that that's why you've gathered together today, is to come together to ascribe the glory due God's name. To worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. Jesus answered him in Luke 4, 8 and said, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our exaltation. He's worthy of our praise. But whether it's beautiful by worldly standards or not, it's beautiful to the heart of God when His people turn their affections toward Him and praise Him and honor Him for who He is, not just for what He does. And then we see His glory. I love these verses. They're a great challenge and encouragement to my heart. When Abimelech, it says, went to him, to Isaac, with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me? He said, wait a minute. First of all, you told me to go away. Now you're coming to me. What is it you want? I'm confused. Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? What did they say? They said, we see plainly. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. What's he saying? He's saying, we see the evidence of this Yahweh in your life. We see evidence of this God that we can't explain moving and working on your behalf. This intrigues us. This amazes us. This stuns us how a man, a sojourner, comes through this land and finds water and produces abundance of crops and multiplies livestock and is blessed and becomes wealthy among us. And we've been here all this time and it's not happening to us to this degree. You've got our attention. Why is this, why do I love this so? Well, because this is the heart of who we are in Christ in this broken world. This is who we are as a church. 
He has set his love upon us. He set his grace upon us. He wants to make himself known to this world through the evidence, through the glory of himself set upon us. He's not asking you to do anything for him. He's asking you to be with him and let him take care of what he does through us. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. You remember John and Peter when they were, at, you know, had been cautioned about uh, preaching in the streets and the, 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 uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people in charge, it says they looked at them and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In their minds, they thought Jesus was dead and buried and gone. But they could look at these guys and tell they'd been with Jesus. Or you remember Rahab in Jericho when the spies went in and she talked to them. And you know what she said to them? She said, we have heard, we know what your God has done for you in breaking the bondage in Egypt. That word has traveled. We've seen and heard about the glory of God. And we don't want to be, I don't want to be on the opposite side of that. Isaac's response is appropriate and effective evangelistic strategy. He displayed genuine hospitality. He said, come on down to my tent. And he prepared a feast. He prepared more than a feast and shared his blessings with them. The blessings that God had invested in him. He could have chased them away just like they had chased him away. But he seized the opportunity to share God's blessings with them. You know, God's purpose for restoring creation is for his own glory. He restores his people in order that he might manifest his glory. He changed your life that he might manifest his glory and greatness upon you, in you, through you, that others might scratch their head and say, what's different? What is it that's happened to this person? I must know. You remember in John 17, Jesus praying to the Father just before his crucifixion said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. And he went on to pray. He said, I don't ask you to take them, that is, his disciples, that is you and I, out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is your purpose. If you're running around, Danny's been teaching, a, he and Jonathan have been teaching a class on the will of God. You, will, you say, I just want to know the will of God. There you have it. There it is. 
in succinct form, that he might glorify his greatness, his glory, resounding, resounding and flowing through you, setting his grace upon you that the others may see it, that this lost, dark world may see it. Why did God do this in Isaac's life? Was it to make him more comfortable? Was it to make him more secure, to make him more famous? He's in the line of promise, one of the people God has chosen. It's through him that God intended to enter the world through the Messiah, and it's all to accomplish God's grand plan to restore fallen creation and to manifest his glory in this creation. God's glory, not man's glory. Why does he call and regenerate lost souls? To improve our lives? To get us to heaven? Those are byproducts. He wants to form a people for himself, a holy people who display his glory. If you have believed the gospel, repented of sin, trusted only in Christ, you belong to God and you are his people. Your purpose is to honor and exalt him. As you live in obedience to him through the power of his spirit working in you. Worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Setting him above all else in your life. And the world's going to scratch its head and say, how can you do that? Why would you do that? Why does he establish a local church like Milton Community Church? To facilitate our interests? To enable our preferences? To make us feel better? To provide therapy week in, week out? Well, you know, if you've been coming here any length of time and sitting on Sunday morning, there's no therapy being dealt out, is there? No, we focus on the truth. Why? Because the truth is what reveals what is corrupt in us and purges those things and exalts God in all of his glory and honor. Therapy doesn't do that. Therapy makes much over the creature. It puts the creature on the throne and worships the creature, not the creator. Does he... Establish a church like us to make us happier and more moral and to make us agents of social improvement? He establishes a local church to display his glory. As we live according to his word and obey his great commission, as we worship in spirit and in truth, as we live faithfully for his glory and by his spirit. Let me ask you this morning, what, what tempts you to succumb to fear and doubt? when it comes to God and following Him and obeying Him and waiting upon Him? What, what tempts you? Is it financial challenges? Do they make you feel vulnerable? Fear of losing your standard of living? Fear of not having enough? Is it the health challenges? Maybe you've got a history in your family that's got you a little bit concerned. Do you struggle with chronic issues, with pain, with weakness? Are you uncertain about your health care? Do interpersonal relationships create fear and doubt for you? Is there a bully in your life? Someone you just don't like to see coming? Somebody that threatens your peace? 
Are there unresolved issues with a family member or a neighbor or someone at work or someone in church? God forbid. Do cultural changes threaten you? Are you fearful about the future for yourself and your family? Are you anxious about institutional changes, you know, to the government or economic changes or educational changes or whatever it may be? Are you concerned about public animosity toward Christianity? I was laughing yesterday because I heard some people talking about uh, one of the players last week in the football games who was wanted to give glory to Jesus and the, and the network that was broadcasting it cut him off. And I said, well, why do we expect anything else? I mean, they're not paying for the rights to broadcast the gospel. They just want to broadcast the game. They're lost, people. They act lost. We need to get over it, right? He did what he was supposed to do. They did what we expect them to do. They are who we thought they were. Just preach and live the gospel. God will sort all those things out. How do you typically get off course spiritually? What or whom is your Egypt that you turn to when everything's kind of unraveling and you feel the fear and the doubt swallowing you up? Who are the Philistines in your life? They're always shoveling dirt, you know, in your spiritual markers. Express resentment about your faith or pushing you away from Christ, trying to become a wedge to separate you from Christ. You know, you're going to stumble and you're going to disobey God, but he's patient. He's long-suffering. He doesn't give up. Don't you give up. Don't despair. Don't quit. Get on your knees and he'll find you. Get on your knees and he will come to you. You're going to experience barren circumstances in your life. Listen, he's generous and he's good. You cannot exhaust his resources. I know you think you can. I, I know you think your life standard, your living standard is too great for God to supply. Listen, he's more than able and he's also more than willing. You're going to experience oppression and difficulties. He's gracious. He's going to make a way for his children because his glory is at stake. You may think you've ruined your communion with God beyond repair. You may feel dry and empty going to, trying to worship God. He's forgiving and he's welcoming. He desires your worship and will supply and equip you to worship. He can, he will, he desires to use you for his glory. Believe it and trust it. Father, we're thankful for who you are, for your patience, Lord, for your grace, for your goodness, shown to us through generosity and provision and care in ways that we don't often acknowledge because it's not the way we prescribe it for ourselves. I thank you for the testimony that we see of your greatness here in your interaction with Isaac.
Lord, he may not have been a, a huge um, player in your developing uh, reclamation project with all of us, but Lord, he's one of your chosen. He made mistakes, but you continue to manifest your greatness and glory even through him. And we pray that we'll all take encouragement and consolation by what we see you reveal about yourself in his life. I pray, Lord, for each person here today that you will help us understand the things that you want and desire for us are greater than, Lord, we expect of ourselves. And you provide them. It's through your power, your spirit working in us that these things will be accomplished. Settle that issue in our hearts and minds today. And we leave this place and go back out into the world, sojourning through this alien land. May we do so, Lord, with you being glorified and honored in us in every way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.